Father, we just come to you, and Lord, 2020 really has been the year that keeps on giving, just one surprise after the other, Lord. It just seems that it doesn't end, and each one of these surprises seem to affect us in an adverse way, and Lord, it seems that we're being backed into a corner. It's almost like we, we, there's no way out of the terrible situation in which this world is in, and Lord, uh, we... We just come to you today, and we just ask for your guidance. And that's what we see in this story that you're going to give us today, Lord. We're going to see that you're, you're the God who knows how to deliver your people, and you're right on time, and you know how to deliver us on time. And, Lord, no matter what we're facing today, no matter how bad our situation may seem, Lord, that you know how to deliver your people. And, and things aren't always the way they seem. Lord, uh, it seems like there's no hope in this land right now, but, Lord, there might be a lot of hope. We, don't, we, we know there's hope in you, but there might be a lot of hope for this country. Lord, you might be, be doing a marvelous work in this country. We've, a lot of us have given up on the United States of America, Lord, but you haven't. And we just thank you for that. And, Lord, we're looking forward to see uh, your deliverance, your deliverance of your people, however that may come, Lord. And, and just like it did for the people of Israel that we're going to look at in this text today, Lord, we know you. You know how to deliver your own from trials and temptations and reserve the unrighteous for judgment, Lord. And you can do that today, and you will do that today, just like you've always done. We just thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you for the mercy we have in Jesus Christ through his blood. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. My daughter-in-law, is a Kaylee, is a teacher at heart. And... I'm really glad about that because she started teaching our young children. I say our young children. See, there's a Freudian slip. That's how I kind of see my grandkids sometimes. But she started teaching her children, our grandchildren, at a very young age. And uh, she's a mathematician. And James was over at the house the other day. And he can already count to ten. And so he was going up the stairs and he went one, two, three, and all the way up to ten. And uh, not only is she teaching them math, she's teaching them English, too. And she teaches them a letter every day. She te- uh, not every day. Each week she teaches them a different letter. And, and she uses Bible stories, I really like this, to illustrate the letter. Well, a few weeks back, she was on the letter D. And so she used the story of Daniel. And she built this little miniature Daniel's lion's den. I mean, it was really cute. And she put a little cardboard Daniel in the lion's den. And for the... For the uh, lion, she went and got a box of uh, animal crackers, and she went through the animal crackers, and she put little lions all over the lion's den. Well, she had to leave and go out of the room for a few minutes, and she came back, and James was up there, and he was looking at the lion's den, and Kaylee looked at the lion's den, and there were no lions in the lion's den. And she said, James, what happened to the lions? And he said, oh, no. I, I mean, I think in his mind what he was thinking was, uh, hey, I didn't do it. Daniel must have done it. I didn't eat those lines. You know, oh no is a phrase, that's the title of the sermon today, and it's a phrase that, that we often find ourselves saying, maybe for, in a different context. Whenever we're in a predicament that we don't, that there, there seems to be no solution for, we, we, we cry out, oh no, oh no. I, I see that all the time these days. Oh no, what's happening now? And that's what the predicament that the Israelites are in today. They're in a situation that it doesn't seem there's any solution for. And I, and I guarantee a lot of them at that point were saying, oh, no. We're going to look at that exciting story here today uh, in a few minutes. But uh, when we left off last time, if you remember, 
the tenth plague had taken place, the, the death of the firstborn, and it was a terrible plague. And in that plague, Pharaoh had lost his firstborn son. And so now he's ready to get rid of the Israelites. And so uh, he says, he brings, calls Moses in and he tells Moses to get the people out of here. Take every man, woman, and child. Take all of the, uh, uh, take every man, woman, and child and all of the livestock and get out of Egypt. And so uh, they were ready to go. If you remember back in chapter 12, you look down at verse number 11 and, and it says there, and thus Moses said to the Israelites, And thus you shall eat the Passover with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your hand, in your hand. So you shall eat of it uh, in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so they were to eat of the Passover ready to move out, ready to head towards the promised land. And so uh, they, as soon as Pharaoh gave them the word, they left immediately. They didn't even have time to... To, to let their bread rise, if you remember. They, they, uh, they, they, they didn't even have time to cook the bread. All they could take was the dough. And so now as we come to chapter 13, they're moving out. And right before they move out, Moses gives them a few more instructions. One of the instructions he gives them is about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We talked about that twice last week, so we're not going to go in that, into that today. But he also told them about... Uh, uh, the uh, law of the firstborn. And the law of the firstborn, like the law of the first fruits, meant that they were to offer up their firstborn unto the Lord. Just like the firstborn had been saved by the Passover blood, their firstborn would have to be redeemed by blood. And the reason the Lord instituted that law was so as a reminder, a constant reminder, every time they had a child, that that child belonged to him and that that child need to be redeemed. It also pointed forward to the fact that all of us had been pointed forward to the cross, the last Passover, and the fact that through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ, all of us have been redeemed. We're like firstborn sons to the Lord, and we've been redeemed by the blood. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. You can, you can read more about that in the Mosaic Law, and we'll see it again as we go through some of these other books, but, but we'll leave it there for right now. I want to pick up uh, down in verse number 17 as uh, we get to the wilderness uh, journey, and, and uh, let's, let's uh, go over that, that uh, scene there beginning in verse number 17. It says, Then it came to pass. When Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. Now, if you look at a map uh, of Egypt and a map of Israel, the shortest route up to the promised land would have been straight up towards Gaza. It was only about 100 miles if if God had led them that route. and So that was the most direct route. You'd think that would have been the route he would have led them, but he didn't lead them that route. He said, although it was near, God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they, are at, when they see war and they return to Egypt. Now, sure enough, if they had gone up into the land of Gaza, they would have had to fought those Philistines. Those Philistines were warriors. Their leaders were warlords, and, and uh, they were constantly in battle. And if, if, the, if the Israelites had gone into that land, they certainly would have had to fight the Philistines, and they would have more than likely returned to Egypt. They would have left Moses and and headed back down, so God didn't want them to go that way. There were other reasons, too. Look at verse number 18. 
So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness. He's talking about the wilderness of sin. Down in, he, he takes them the opposite, opposite direction, hundreds of miles out of the way, down to the wilderness of sin of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So they go way out of the way. All Instead of heading north, they head south. And they end up at the Red Sea. And you got to ask yourself, why did God do that? Well, he had several reasons. One, he's going to destroy the armies of, of Pharaoh. So they won't ever come after Israel again. Uh, the other reason is to prepare Israel for the journey that they're going to take. He knew all along what was going to happen to Israel. They were going to rebel. They weren't going to believe him. And they were going to wander 40 years in the, in the wilderness. And that was to prepare the nation to be the kind of nation he wanted them to be when they went into the promised land. And so, so he takes them south. And notice that he takes them in, an, in orderly ranks. Now, there's a lesson for us here. Because the church, is, or the, Israel, is a type of the church. And notice how he leads uh, Israel down to the Red Sea in orderly ranks. It wasn't, okay, we're heading to the promised land. We'll see you all up there when we get there, every man for himself. That wasn't the way God led the Israelites. That's not the way he leads the church. I mean, it's not every man for himself. I mean, we're to move out in an orderly fashion. We're to move out together. We're to work together and serve together. People tell me all the time, I hear people all the time tell me, I don't need to be part of an assembly. Well, you're not part of the church then, because the very word church means the assembly of the called out ones. Now, why do we assemble together? Why does God organize us into a church? So that we can serve him by serving other people. You can only do that through the church. Uh, you know, there might be times some, some exceptions to that rule, but, that, but the rule is that we move out as an assembly in an orderly fashion. All right, then in verse number 19, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for, he had placed the children, for Joseph had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Remember back in Genesis 50, Joseph was dying. He told the brethren, look, when you go into the promised land, I want you to take my bones up to the promised land. And they're just fulfilling that promise right here in verse number 19. Then in verse number 20. So they took the journey from Sukkot, and they camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people for the entire 40 years. They wandered in that wilderness. They saw that pillar of fire. And that pillar of fire was nothing less than the Shekinah glory of God. And what a beautiful sight that had to be. The very presence of God. Everywhere they went, they were led by that cloud. The very Shekinah glory of God. I, I, I would love to see that. I would love to see a picture of that. I wish they had had cameras back then and taken a picture of that. Tuesday night as Sally was making its way onto the Gulf Coast, uh, we had some of the dark clouds from the edge of that storm passing over our house from the east. And, and around dusk, uh, the sun hit those clouds and it turned those clouds kind of reddish black. And I was thinking to myself, that, that had to look 
that looks something like what the Shekinah glory must have looked like. That red cloud, and that, that cloud of glory. And, and uh, uh, it was with them. It was with them for their, really for their entire history. They didn't see the cloud like they did in the wilderness once they were in the tabernacle and then the, in the temple in, in Israel. But, but that Shekinah glory was there. Over in Ezekiel, we see the Shekinah glory depart the temple. But even when they saw that cloud, it wasn't many years, it didn't take many years for them to take that cloud for granted. To take the very presence of God for granted. What, what a warning to us. You know, Paul says over and over again in 1 Corinthians to those Corinthians who, who were living you know, for their flesh, living for the world. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? What Paul was saying there is, do you not know that the Shekinah glory of God rests upon you? I think Paul would have loved for them to have seen that glory resting on them, the very presence of God resting on them. And I say to all of us, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the very presence of God rests in you? You know... I think there's a danger for us, just like there was for the Israelites, that we take that presence of God for granted. That we forget the fact that God is present with us no matter where we go. They saw him every day. They saw him every night. Over time, he just became a you know, part of the landscape. And they took him for granted. God forbid that we ever do that, that we take the very presence of God for granted. All right, then, then we go to chapter number 14. It says, now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. Now, here's where they were heading. They were heading down into a canyon by the Red Sea where they had cliffs on the right of them and they had... Uh, on the right of them, they had cliffs on the left of them. And uh, uh, they had the Red Sea in front of them. And it looked like maybe God was leading them into a trap. And he says, speak to the children of Israel and, and, and take them down to the Red Sea, down into this canyon. God was leading them into a trap. But it wasn't a trap for them, it was a trap for Pharaoh. It looked like it was going to be a trap for them, but it was a, it was a trap for Pharaoh. And, and look what happens. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. And, you know, no doubt Pharaoh had spies. He had spies who were watching the nation of Israel as they moved. And the spies came to Pharaoh and they said, you're not going to believe it. You know what those fools have done? They've gone down south instead of, they don't even know their directions. Instead of heading north up into the wilderness, they've headed south down to the wilderness of sin, and they're trapped. They've gone into a canyon, and they're trapped uh, by the Red Sea and by those, by those cliffs. And so the Lord says, uh, he says, Then I will, for Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army. That the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Now I got to wonder why they didn't already know that he was the Lord. I mean after ten supernatural 
plagues, one of them that killed all of their firstborn animals and all of their firstborn sons, you got to wonder why they didn't already know that he was the Lord. But this time they're going to know that, that the Lord is the Lord. And they did so. And Pharaoh did exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. They fell right into his trap. And then verse number 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt where the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and, the, and, and his servants was turned against the people, the Jews. And they said, why have you done this that we have let Israel go uh, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? In other words, what, what have we done to ourselves? I mean, these Jews did everything for us. They were our slave laborers. They're gone now. And we've made a big mistake. Let's, let's fix that mistake and go chase these Jews down. And we'll, we'll, we'll bring, them, bring the ones back that we can bring back. We'll slaughter the ones that won't go. So he made ready his chariot, and he took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots. And all the other chariots that he had, and captains of the chariots, uh, with every, over every one of them. So, so Pharaoh takes his war machine. He takes the best of his war machine. In those days, chariots were like tanks, and so uh, Israel had no defense against those chariots, and so so they were in deep trouble. It, it looked that way anyway. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, his heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder. It's like a rock at this point. And he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel, uh, hey, they went out with boldness. Now, at this point, they don't know that Pharaoh's coming. And so they're cheerful, they're happy, they're bold, everything's, you know, life is good for them. They're heading to the promised land, at least they think that, and uh, things are about to change. And so the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of uh, Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping beside Pi-Hiroth before Bahel Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, Oh no, what are we going to do? Then they said to Moses, and I love this, because this sounds just like a witty Jew right here. Listen to what they say. Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken his way to die in the wilderness so we can be buried here instead of Egypt? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Now this is just the beginning of, of the complaining by the Egyptians, I mean by the Israelites. They're going to complain throughout this journey, throughout the 40 years they're out in the desert. Most of what they say is going to be uh, amount to a lot of murmuring and a lot of complaining. And what's at the root of that murmuring and complaining? complaining? What's, what was at the root of that? Unbelief, exactly. They, they didn't really believe the Lord. Now, don't you think they should have believed the Lord at this point? I mean, they had every reason to believe the Lord. They had seen these ten plagues. They had seen how the first three or four plagues affected them, and the last uh, six plagues didn't, didn't touch them at all, how God had protected them, how he delivered them from Pharaoh's hand. And now they're ready to throw all of that out the window because they see Pharaoh's armies coming. And, and at the root of that is unbelief. Belief. The root of, at the root of their murmuring and the root of their complaining is unbelief. Paul tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 
10, he gives us a warning. He said, don't be like the Israelites who perished in the wilderness. And the reason they perished in the wilderness was this. They rose up every morning to play. What was on their mind when they got up every morning is, what am I going to do that's fun today? What am I going to watch on TV? Where am I going to go? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? That's the way they lived. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That was their philosophy throughout their history, really. And that's what brought them down. It's really their philosophy now. The only thing that saves them is the grace of God. And and then they also, they murmured against God. And Paul says, don't be like them. Don't murmur and complain against God and don't live an Epicurean lifestyle. If you do, then hey, you're in danger of perishing just like they did in the wilderness. Let me tell you what. If all we care about is eating and drinking and being married, there's, we've got to question to some degree our faith. Do we have sincere faith in God? I mean, you can tell something about your faith by what you think about when you first get up in the morning. Now, I'm kind of like uh, Dr. Kelly, the president of uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary, used to say about his wife, she doesn't know she's saved at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm kind of like that too, but, but around 10 o'clock in the morning, I, at least I start thinking about God. Before I start, actually before 10 o'clock, I'm joking, but, 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 but I, I want to begin my day. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. Uh, look, you're asking for trouble if you head out into the world without being covered uh, by the protection of God. And, and I, God's always there. That, that cloud was always with the Israelites, even when they, were with complaint, when they were complaining. And God's always with you, even when you're complaining. And even when you're not thinking about God, God's thinking about you. But God likes to teach us lessons. And I, he does that in a very hard way sometimes. And I, You know, I, I want to say I've learned my lesson. And one of the lessons I've learned is I can live life, a, a lot better life, a lot safer life, a lot easier life, if I begin my day in prayer with the Lord. And I, and, 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 and. And that'll stop some of the murmuring and complaining, too. And whenever we murmur and complain, you know what we're saying? We're saying, Lord, I don't really trust you. I don't really believe you. And I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of murmuring and complaining. And I'm sure some of y'all are, too. All of us are. When things don't go our way, when things get really bad. If you say, I'm not guilty of murmuring and complaining, uh, just wait. You will be. Because when the situation gets really tight... We forget all the things that God has done for us in the past and we begin to murmur and complain. Shame on us. Shame on these Jews for murmuring and complaining. But, but that's going to be their history because they never really fully trusted the Lord. The only thing that saves them, the only thing that keeps them going is the grace of God. And that's what keeps me going. Now, he says in the uh, verse number 12, is this, or the Jews say, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. In other words, we were doing just fine, Moses, before you came along. Uh, is that so? Were they doing just fine? How quickly we forget what life was like before we knew the Lord, before our deliverer 
came along and saved us. Were we doing just fine? I don't think so. Were the Egyptians doing fine? I don't think so. Their backs were fodder for the Egyptian whips. Uh, they worked from, from uh, dawn to dusk every day. They lived in shanties. They had a terrible life. And God was delivering them from that life. He was delivering them from bondage. And, and, and what do they do? Hey, they go back and say, we wish we were back in Egypt. We were doing just fine. You know, it was Patrick Henry at the beginning of the American Revolution who said, give me liberty or give me death. You know what the Jews are saying right here? Give me life and keep your liberty. I would rather, if we would rather be alive uh, than, than, than uh, uh, die out here in this wilderness being free. And I think that's the point where a lot of Americans are today. Give me, uh, give me life uh, and keep your liberty. I mean, if it means I lose my life, I'm willing to give up the freedoms that I, my founding fathers fought for, the freedoms that I have in this great country of the United States of America. And it's really sad that's what's happening today in many circles and it's going to even get worse if, if, if God doesn't change it. Because people are surrendering their freedoms for safety and for, for, uh, uh, to save their lives. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, The Lord is the Spirit. Jesus is the Spirit. And, and where the Spirit is, there is freedom. I mean, the Jews had been set free by Jesus Christ himself. And here they are, and they're willing to give up all of that freedom in order to be safe and alive. And that's really, really sad. And it's a good thing that God wasn't going to let them give up uh, their freedom. Uh, he was actually going to deliver them, and we see that beginning in, beginning in verse number 13. It says that Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. I'm going to deal with the Egyptians. Uh, You're going to be saved. You know, they were learning a lesson. A lesson in the life of a child of God. And that is this, that things aren't always the way they seem to be. It looked like this was the end of Israel. I mean, if you were an Israelite and you saw the situation and you looked and you had mountains to the left of you and mountains to the right of you and you had the Red Sea in front of you and you had Pharaoh nipping at your heels coming with his massive army and you had nowhere to go, you would think, hey, we're all about to be slaughtered or we're all going to go back to Egypt and, and we're going to be slaves again. But it, and, and they look, it looked as if they were doomed. But they weren't the ones who were doomed. Who was doomed? It was Pharaoh and his armies that were doomed. You know, that's a story that repeats itself over and over again in Scripture, where things don't seem like they really are. They seem to be a lot worse than they really are. And at the, in the nick of time, God always delivers his people. He always does that. There's a story over in Second Chronicles, uh, when Jehoshaphat was king, 
And the Ammonites and the Moabites mounted a large army of a, of a million men. They brought all the warrior tribes of Mount Seir with them, and they came against the little state of Israel, against the little state of Judah. And it looked like they were doomed. And Jehoshaphat went to prayer, and, and a prophet came and spoke to him and the people, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat said these very words. He said, stand here still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And the Lord gave, they didn't have to do anything. They just went out and sang him. And the Lord gave them a great victory over this million man army. Isn't that the way the Lord, he, he's always there. He's always there to deliver us. He, he, he always delivers us. I mean, I mean, the greatest story along those lines comes on Good Friday when Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross. It seems like, hey, it's all over for everybody. The disciples scattered, and, and as far as they were concerned, everything they had worked for those three years with Jesus, it was gone. All that hope of eternal life, all that hope of a, a messianic kingdom, all of it seemed to be gone. But that was Friday, and Sunday was a coming. And Sunday came, and Jesus rose from that grave. And, and, and you could stand still, and you could see the deliverance of the Lord when he rose from that grave. You know, I don't know about you, but that, that's my, my life story. I mean, my life story, I, I remember when I was saved, I had cliffs to the left of me, cliffs to the right of me, and a sea of impossibilities in front of me, and, and I was doomed. And the Lord came, and the Lord chased me down, and the Lord saved me. I remember telling my, my mother that if, if, if God could get me out of all the trouble I'm in, part in the Red Sea is nothing. I mean, I, I was in some deep trouble. And God delivered me out of every single uh, situation that, 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 that seemed to, to uh, be looming uh, in my life that would have doomed me for good. And God delivered me out of all of that. And I'm so grateful. And that's, that's the way, way the Lord does. Then in verse number 14, is, listen to what he says. He says, Moses, he says, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You won't have to do anything. The Lord's going to deliver you. Now, at this point, Moses prays. Moses is pretty confident. He says, stand still, see the deliverance of the Lord. But then I think he begins to wonder, is the Lord really going to deliver us? And so he prays. We're not given that in the text. We can tell that by context here in just a second. But Moses prays and he says, Lord, hey, you've got to help us. This is bad. Hey, they're right. We might have been better off going, staying in Egypt. We're about to be destroyed by Pharaoh's army. We have no place to go. Look where we're at. And listen to what the Lord says. The Lord says in verse number 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Look, there's a time to pray and there's a time to act. The Lord is saying to Moses, look, I appreciate your prayers, but why do you cry to me? This isn't a time to be praying This is a time to act. A lot of times our prayers are indicators of the fact that we have no faith. God's told us what to do. He's he's shown us what he can do. And he's told us what to do. And we keep praying, Lord, what should I do? Well, there's times we got to move out. and we got to move out in faith. And that's what the Lord's saying to Moses here. He says, but lift up that rod that you got in your hand. That one that, that turned into a snake. That rod that you, you, touch, you let, put over the, the Nile River and it turned to red. The, the rod that you stuck out over the Nile River and the frogs came out. I mean, that rod that you've used over and over again, hey, use it again. And, and 
And he says, lift up that rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel will, shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now, there's two miracles that take place here. One, God parts the sea, and one, he dries the ground of the sea so that they can walk through it. Otherwise, they would have just sunk in the sand. And, and then in verse number 17, he says, And indeed, and I will, I will, indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. And here's the bad news. They're going to follow you. They're going to come after you. So I will gain honor before Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. In other words, I'm going to make believers out of these Egyptians once and for all. They're not going to become children of God, but they're going to become believers in Yahweh as the God, the Almighty God. What's really sad was that they never really became children of God. James says this about that type of belief. He says the demons believe God and they tremble. They believe in God. Even demons believe in God. But the difference, there's a difference between believing in something and putting your trust in what you believe in. You've got, you can't just believe in God. You've got to put your trust in God. You, there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus Christ. They know all about Jesus Christ. But they've never really put their faith in Jesus Christ. And until you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, you, you won't be born again. And you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse number 19, And the angel of God, none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the p- pillar of cloud went before them and stood uh, behind them. And, and here you get this great picture of the triune God watching over his people and protecting his people. And so it came, so, it, so the cloud came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near and the other, uh, and the other all that night. So the Pharaoh and his armies didn't come to them near them all that night because it, it, made, it was dark, the light the Shekinah glory cloud was darkness to them, and it was light unto the Israelites. Isn't that true about God and the things of God? That the things of God to the people of God are light? The things of God to the to, to people who are not of God are darkness? I mean, this word, this word is, is, is darkness to people who are perishing. I mean, when you try to show somebody this word who doesn't know the Lord or doesn't want to know the Lord, has no interest in knowing the Lord, it is darkness to them. They don't want this word. That's why they want the word removed from every vestige of society. But it's light to us. It's a light into our feet, a lamp into our path. I mean, it's all different. And I think as believers, we have to understand that when we're dealing with unbelievers that they don't see this the same way we see this. I mean, you're like, hey, don't you get this? Can't you see this? They can't see it because to them it's darkness and to us it's light. Then uh, in verse number 21, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and he made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. 
and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, there are scholars who give all sorts of naturalistic explanations to how this Red Sea crossing took place. Uh, some of them say it was a hurricane that just happened to come at a certain time, or an earthquake that caused the seas to part, or a tornado, or something like that. Uh, or some say that they crossed at the Sea of Reeds, and it was only like three feet deep. All of those things are really silly when you look at what happened right here. They're silly explanations because this had to be supernatural. This east wind was nothing less than the breath of God. He had to blow that, not only part those seas, but that ground had to be made dry. It was dry for the Israelites, and as we're going to see in a minute, it wasn't dry for the Egyptians. And so this is nothing short of a miracle of God. I mean, you, you you can't see it any other way. Then it says in verse number 23, it says, And the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. I've got to tell you, you can say they were brave. I don't think they were brave. What has what the Bible told us about Pharaoh and, his, and the Egyptians? He has hardened their hearts. You would have to have a hard heart to look at that scene and go take your chariot into that, in, into that wall, uh, that seawall on both sides and, and into that ground, and, and, and uh, uh, you, you had to have a lot of guts. And really it wasn't guts and courage, it was a hard heart. I don't think one of them would have gone into it if it hadn't been for the fact that their hearts were hardened. Now it came to pass in the, uh, in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and, and cloud, and, and, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians in the way he did that, the ground that they were on was still wet. And, and, and so he took off their, their chariot wheels. They sunk in that ground so that they, uh, they drove them with difficulty. They, they, they couldn't even move the chariots. And now all of a sudden the Egyptians wake up. And they realize that they're fighting a losing battle. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. For the Lord, Jehovah, fights for them against the Egyptians. I mean, they finally have figured it out that the Lord is not fighting with them, that the Lord is fighting uh, with the Israelites. See, the Egyptians did what a lot of us do when there's a battle raging in our lives. I mean, we ask the question, whose side is God on in this battle? I mean, we want to know, who is God on our side or is he on uh, our enemy's side. And, and uh, they had asked that question, and they had come to the conclusion that the Lord was on uh, Israel's side. But that's not the right question to ask when you're in the midst of a battle. The right question isn't whose side is God on. The right question is, am I on God's side? That's the question you want to be asking. You remember... When Joshua takes the children of Israel across the Jordan River and they go into the promised land. And he runs into the angel of the Lord, the captain of, of, the, of the, the host of the, of the Lord, the captain of the armies of the Lord. And Joshua asks him, he says, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or on you on the, are you on the side of the Canaanites? And the Lord gave him a very kind of strange, a very strange answer. He said, no, 
He, he, he said no. And what did he mean by that? He said, he, the Lord was saying to Joshua, I'm not on either side. The question isn't whose side I'm on. The question is whose side are you on? You're standing on holy ground, Joshua. You should be on my side. And if you're on my side, if you're on the side of the Lord, then you're on the winning side. If you're not on the side of the Lord, you're on the losing side. I mean, when America fights a war, we very well might be fighting for God, or we very well might be fighting against God. I, 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 I really think God is neutral in the wars that we fight. Some people seem to think that God's on our side. And, and I, as God certainly uses America to do certain things in this world, and I think in that sense he is on our side. But God's on the side of all people. God's on the side especially of all his people, people who are on his side. Are you on God's side? I think we fought very few wars. Maybe World War II might be an exception where we could say that we were fighting this battle for, for the Lord. Uh, that's the battle we want to fight because that's a winning battle. All right. And we go back and we finish up in verse number, beginning in verse number 26. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea. Did I just did I do that already? Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that, uh, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on the chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing, so that the Lord overthrew the Egyptians and uh, in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. No longer were they saying, oh no, they were saying, oh my, look what the Lord has done. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the land of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses, and they lived happily ever after. They should have. But they didn't. But here you have this scene and you see thousands upon thousands of Egyptians, Egyptian soldiers drown. Uh, they're floating to the shores. Not so much as one of them remain. And Israel was put in a position where they would never have to worry about Pharaoh and his armies ever again. And Hey, they're ready to praise God. At this point, they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord, and they even feared his servant Moses. They revered his servant Moses at this point. But their great faith wasn't so great. We're going to see here later on. It's only three days later. We're not going to go to that today. We'll go to that next week. But only three days later, and they're out in the wilderness on the journey for three days and they're having a tough time finding water and all of a sudden they're ready to stone Moses again. So it didn't last very long, but at least at this point for now, they're, they're, they're fearing the Lord and they're fearing Moses. 
So there we have it. We've got this great deliverance that God gives to Israel over the Egyptians. Uh, Here they were in the seemingly impossible predicament, and God delivers them. Just like he will deliver you and I when we're in a predicament, a seemingly impossible predicament. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're in a situation that there seems to be no solution for, that even God can't deliver you out of? I mean, you might have this disease to your left. I mean, a loss of a job to your right. Your creditors nipping at your heels and a sea of impossibility in front of you. And all you can say is, oh, no. What can I do now? I mean, here we are living in Louisiana in the United States of America today, and we got hurricanes to the left of us, hurricanes to the right of us, hurricanes at our rear. We've got riots to the left of us. We've got a looming financial disaster to the right of us. We've got COVID-19 chasing us from the rear. And it seems like there's nothing but a sea of impossibilities in front of us. And it seems that all we can do is say, oh, no. Oh, no, what can I do now? F.B. Meyer lists our choices when we're in one of those oh, no situations. The choices of the things that we can do when we're faced with that kind of situation. He says, one, we can despair. Two, we can, we can become cowards and run. Three, we can make haste to do anything to try to fix our situation. Four, we can be presumptuous and presume on God for a miracle. Or five, and this is the route we want, we want, we want to choose, we can move out in faith. You know... When we have despair, despair whispers to us, lie down and die. You ever feel like that? Lie down and die. Give, give up. You ever feel like giving up? There's no hope for you. Give up. That's what despair says to us. Cowardice says this. Cowardice says retreat. Surrender. Go back to Egypt. Go back to the world. This Christian life isn't, isn't worth living. It's too tough. Haste says, don't just stand there, do something, anything. I know a lot of people who act like that when they're in a difficult situation. Presumption says this, if the sea be before me, hey, just march forward and expect God to do a miracle. But faith says, wait on the Lord. Go where he tells you to go and move when he tells you to move. And then stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. If you face your oh no situation in faith, let me tell you what, the Shekinah of glory of God will lead you. The angel of the Lord will protect your rear and you will see the glory of the Lord as he delivers you. 
Your deliverance might come through some task that God calls you to do, some task you don't want to do, some impossible task that you don't think you can do. It might come because he touches someone's heart to help you in the situation that you're in. It might even come, your deliverance might even come through your, the death of your mortal body. And hallelujah, your deliverance might come through the rapture. Things, uh, the worse things get, the more it seems like we're heading to the rapture. But your deliverance is going to come if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, good luck in this world. That's all I can say. If you can look at this world now and, 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 and think you can make it on your own without the help of God, good luck to you. Luck is what you're going to have to have. And I doubt you're going to get it. But if you're a child of God, your deliverance is going to come. And soon, instead of, being, of saying, oh, no, you'll be saying, oh, my, look what the Lord has done. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can trust you in every situation that we're in. No matter how difficult it seems, Lord, things aren't always the way they seem. With you, there are all sorts of possibilities for our deliverance. Lord, and you've always delivered us in the past, and you're always going to deliver us in the future. Things might get tough. Lord, we'll be tempted to murmur and complain, but help us, Lord, to be strong in our faith. Help us to wait on you and trust on you, trust in you, and see your deliverance. Father, if there's someone here who does not know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, just open their eyes to what a desperate situation this world is in right now. Lord, and lead them, lead them by your grace, by your spirit, into a real relationship with you. Lord, it's in that relationship that we have peace and joy and long-suffering that we need in these very difficult times. And along with that, our deliverance, Lord, we know that our deliverance is always near when we're near you. We just thank you for that. In Christ's name I pray, amen.